Hi, and welcome to the Untold Arizona podcast, a series from KJZZ News. I'm Stina Sieg. Whether you were born here or you're new to the state, we're willing to bet there are some Arizona stories you may not know. Hoover Dam? Yeah, everybody knows about that. But we have a story about the very first dam. We're going to the Elvis Chapel. And no, it's not like... Mine is about to reopen in Skull Valley. Have you ever stopped in Dateland for a date shake? The tuppery bean weathered Arizona summers for some... How are archaeologists tracing ancient turquoise back to its source? 1960s. And while not as famous as Tombstone, it was just as bloody. This is Untold Arizona. And this episode, we're calling Groundwork. We're getting back to the land. In this first story, let's trace turquoise from its archaeological past to its uncertain future. The Tucson Gem and Mineral Show is an annual event that highlights stones and bones from across the globe. But as Nicholas Gerbis reports from the Arizona Science Desk, no stone evokes Arizona history and culture quite like turquoise. Collectors know the names. Bluebird, Sleeping Beauty, Bird's Eye. Each evokes a color and a pattern from jade green to deepest robin's egg blue, lightly freckled or shot through with pyrite spiderwebs of gold and black. There's some color of turquoise some type that will appeal to almost everybody. And the nice thing about it is you pick that piece of turquoise up, there's never going to be another one exactly like it to match up. Martin Kolbaugh owns and operates Kolbaugh Processing, source of Kingman Turquoise from Turquoise Mountain in Mineral Park. One of the oldest and most productive turquoise sources in the United States, it's a family affair. In Mineral Park in 1962, my grandfather was the first one there to mine. Here in a giant metal Quonset hut, buckets of ore by the score, sorted by color and quality, await the tumbling, grinding, polishing, and cutting that prepare turquoise for market. This is kind of the process of uh, opening up a window. That window opens where a worker grinds and polishes a fragment of rough stone, exposing the lively colors concealed beneath its chalky surface. The variety of hues and patterns around us underlines the problem with identifying turquoise's origins by sight alone. Yet where it comes from accounts for much of turquoise's value, and not just to gemologists. One of my questions was, were they getting turquoise from similar places, even though they had different backgrounds? Archaeologist Saul Hedquist wanted to uncover patterns of turquoise use in the pre-Hispanic Southwest. To find where his artifacts originated, he turned to the work of geochemist Allison Thibodeau. We have sort of a, a fragmented picture today that we're trying to rebuild. Thibodeau links turquoise artifacts to their source rock by examining telltale ratios of certain isotopes, versions of elements with the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons. Turquoise forms when water dissolves copper deposits in nearby rock, leaching out copper, phosphate, and aluminum. But the process also sweeps in lots of odds and ends. I call it sometimes the garbage can mineral, like, you know, it's full of so many impurities. Among them, isotopes of strontium and lead. Sources, they have different isotopic signatures, so then the turquoise ends up kind of just acquiring the signature of the rocks that it forms in. Because these signatures vary from region to region, they can sometimes tie turquoise to its source, or at least narrow down the list of candidates. Southeastern Arizona is different from Northwestern Arizona. And both those regions are different from uh, central New Mexico and central Colorado. Case in point, 
Canyon Creek, a 14th century mine located on today's Fort Apache Indian Reservation. Thibodeau's isotopic evidence, combined with Hedquist's in-depth surveys, revealed that the site, once considered a minor source, actually supplied turquoise to ancestral Puebloans up to 60 miles away. It was way, way bigger than was previously thought. Is that turquoise in that rock What's by the bucket? Yes, yeah. it is. Back at Turquoise Mountain, I feel the jolt other Arizonans must have felt when spying a blue-green surface deposit among the gray feldspar. Hit in the eye. <laughs> but I'm also reminded that every mine, whether Canyon Creek or the Ithaca Peak Mine, where Colbaugh's grandfather began in 1962, has its heyday, bookended by discovery and abandonment. Today, many southwestern sources have been exhausted or priced out of business. Everybody's not working right now because world prices are so low, they can't mine it economically. Yet the legacy of the mines lives on, in market bazaars, cultural ties, and the work of archaeologists who trace Turquoise's path like a blue-green vein through Arizona's past. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Golden Valley, Arizona. From turquoise in Golden Valley to water in the Yuma Valley, let's talk about the history of the very first dam on the Colorado River, the Laguna Dam. We all know Hoover Dam, and you might know about the Imperial or other dams that manage the Colorado River. But the Laguna Dam was the very first dam on the Colorado. It diverted water to farm fields in the Yuma Valley. As KJZZ's Brett Jaspers reports, the Laguna Dam set the table for large-scale farming in southwest Arizona. This story about a dam starts with fire, a steak fry in Yuma. It's where I met Jim Cumming. Medium rare, medium rare. Bobby, I need a medium rare. Yep, there you go. All right. Perfect. Cumming is a retired farmer, third generation. He's also the president of the Yuma County Water Users Association. His grandfather immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland by way of Canada. Cumming's grandfather got 160 acres in the Yuma Valley from the federal government. They had to develop that land, grub it out, you know, bring it into the production, and he had to make a living some way, and this Laguna Dam project opened up, so they moved up to the dam and he worked on the dam there as a carpenter. Cummings' grandfather helped build the dam that made it possible to irrigate his own farmland. The Cumming Farm and so many others have thrived due to the Laguna Dam and later Colorado River projects. It's uh, created a tremendous amount of wealth in the community and the state and, and the nation. I mean we send produce now all over the United States, Canada and even ship it overseas. On a sunny January afternoon, workers at the Laguna Dam were repairing the original concrete from over a hundred years ago. The agency, now known as the Bureau of Reclamation, built the dam. It cost two million dollars. Because it's historical, we have to maintain it. Doug Cox works for the Imperial Irrigation District. It manages the Laguna Dam. The dam has gates along the California side that are now sealed up. Back when the dam was still used for large-scale irrigation, they'd release the water out of those gates. It used to divert the water into a channel, and the channel ran all the way, and that's how uh, Yuma got their water. So irrigation was happening, but the Laguna Dam is small and not built to store water. Crops could still be wrecked by floods. 
This didn't really stop the flooding because it didn't stop the water. This is not a uh, storage dam, it's a diversion dam. Colorado River flooding didn't get fully under control until the Hoover Dam started storing water in 1935. These days, the Laguna Dam doesn't do much more than divert overflow after a big rain. But the Laguna was the first step in harnessing the Colorado River to create both safety and prosperity. It's up there probably about 20 miles up river. Tina Clark is a historian for the city of Yuma. We're on the roof of the old city hall. I think the Laguna Dam is reflective of having the West become domesticated more and more. Construction wrapped up on the Laguna Dam in 1909, the same year the Yuma Territorial Prison closed. Coincidentally, Clark owns a restored church in Yuma built in 1909. The domestication really came with the churches. And, and bringing your wife and becoming a farmer. So the Wild West pioneers, the miners, the guys that came alone versus the guys that brought their wives. The farming life drew Jim Cummings' grandparents to the Yuma Valley. Dams, starting with the Laguna, allowed his family to thrive there. And the river wasn't that, you know, it wasn't stable at all. It was a meandering all over, so it made it real tough and that's why the beer reclamation created these places and uh, it's been a it's, it's been a godsend down here it's hard to argue with him when you visit yuma at harvest time passing acres and acres of winter vegetables fields as green as the surrounding hills are dry brett jaspers kjzz news yuma the northeast of the Laguna Dam is Skoll Valley, a town originally settled for those moving west in search of metals. Now the mines are long gone, except one. It's an old kitty litter mine in Yavapai County that could become active again. And yeah, it was actual kitty litter. Now that material is sought after as a valuable additive to concrete, but some locals are unhappy to have a mine as a neighbor. KJZZ's Casey Kuhn reports on the changing values of a town built from the mining industry. Listen to how this rock sounds. There. Here, what geologist Al Birch says is a little tink sound when his rock hammer hits the soft white stone. You can tell when you hit it with a hammer, there's a little tink to it. That's how you tell the silica content. This pearly rock's special sound comes from the high amount of silica or glass inside it. It's very unique because it has just the right chemical composition and just the right physical characteristics to be able to be used as a high-quality natural pozolon. Pozolon is a silica-rich substance used to strengthen concrete. The high grade of this particular mineral puts it in the same mining category as gold, but really more along the lines of something like high-quality limestone. This material is not metallic, it's just valuable and uncommon. To get to the mine site, Birch, Bureau of Land Management officials, and I pile into a car in Skull Valley, 40 minutes southwest of Prescott. The SUV drives slowly up a dusty road flanked by jagged white stone spires. The white cliffs and the hillsides is the volcanic tough material. BLM Hasayampa field manager Rem Halls explains why this mine could happen on federal land. One of the reasons that we're considering this at all is because of 
the demonstrated economic value of the material. The plan is the ivory rock crunching under our feet will be mined and crushed for under $20 a ton, then sold to buyers for around $50 to $60 a ton. And this project would last decades. Kirkland Mining Project Manager Birch says using the land for its resources follows in the footsteps of Skull Valley's mining past. So there's a long history of mining in the region. And that's what really led to the discovery and the use of this deposit through time. Skull Valley's name comes after white settlers found the sun-bleached remains of a large Native American battle left in the area. Settlers carved out the rock to build their homes in the 19th century. Those stone blocks even made it all the way to build part of Arizona's Capitol building in Phoenix. Four horses here. Skull Valley resident Allison Dixon has her home by the railroad, where she keeps a small peach orchard, chicken coop, and her prized Arabian horses. If you live in Yavapai County, you live near an old mine, for sure. Dixon is anti-mine. She says if the mine were on private property, she might feel differently. But she thinks the potential 85 trucks a day the mine could bring through this pastoral area are just one of the many downsides. It is private interests looking to profit off of public lands, and in doing so, negatively impact the local community and destroy a beautiful environment. This is a shift in attitude from economic development to human habitation in Skull Valley. Brigitte Pleitgen lives with her husband in a home right next to the public land and the mine claim. We moved here for peace and quiet. We didn't move here to mine. Nobody was mining here when we bought. We were told nobody was going to mine here. Pleitgen can see the white dust blow off the disturbed rock from her kitchen window. And she knows every rocky crag and outcrop of land she's hiked on for the past 20 years. But now this, scraping this all open, is now creating the issue of having dust. This is new. They just dug all this up. Pleitgen points out the spot where the mining company has taken a thousand tons of rock for sampling and processing. To her, the land is worth more than the economic value that can be derived from it. At the top of the mine, BLM field manager Rem Hawes says officials are listening to the community. If this project is to go forward, we want to make sure that we mitigate any or all impacts that have been identified. Things like biological and cultural resources and air and water quality. If all goes according to plan for the mining company, operations will start in the spring of 2019. Casey Kuhn, KJZZ News, reporting from Skull Valley. You've been listening to Untold Arizona. This has been the Groundwork episode, with stories from KJZZ reporters Brett Jaspers, Nicholas Gerbis, and Casey Kuhn. It was produced by Tiara Vian. The stories were edited by Mark Moran. The digital team is Jackie High, Sky Shout, Kaylee Schufeld, and Jean-Claire Sarmiento. For pictures, videos, and more, visit untold.kjzz.org. Have an untold Arizona story of your own? Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag untoldarizona. And check out our Facebook group where you can connect with more people who love a good Arizona mystery as much as you do. I'm Stina Sieg. Thanks for listening.